Hello, everybody, and welcome to Breaking, a baseball news podcast here on the Pitcherless Podcast Network. We love that you're listening. If you could, uh, hit that subscribe button, rate us five stars, comments, all that good stuff. But otherwise, we'll get right into it as I'm Tim Jackson here with TC Zenka. And TC, we've got some big news right off the bat. Mickey Calloway has been put on the ineligible list for at least through 2022 as the result of having violated MLB's policies uh, on what was it? Sexual harassment based on how his uh, on the stories broken through the athletic about how he um, he communicated with female members of the organizations he's been a part of. So uh, you see this come across your screen, TC. Do you think baseball is changing for the better when it comes to uh, policing the people they put in charge? Kind of. Reporters are making progress. Reporters are doing a really good job finding these instances and, and outing people who need to be outed for being scumbags. But uh, you know, I don't think that MLB is being nearly as proactive as they should be, nor are they being as uh, harsh as they should be in some of these circumstances. So, no, I, actually, I don't think we see or you're seeing a lot of progress on MLB's front, but I do think reporters are doing a pretty darn good job. I think that's a good way to splice it. The one thing that I thought of when it came across my screen when I learned of this news was the league isn't quite doing the best job they could be, and the reporters doing a better job, I think, is a great point. I also think that it's going to be a much more systemic effort, which makes it a much more long-term effort. And it's going to be like, probably younger people. I, a lot of people in the game, I mean, the, the, the mess when it came to Mickey Calloway was dubbed one of the worst-kept secrets in baseball, if you read through those reports to The yeah. Athletic. Uh, so I think as the younger and middle-aged crowd in baseball ages, hopefully we see things a little more... Uh, appropriate in response to this kind of inappropriate behavior. Yeah, but that's going to be a slow movement because this really happens at the ownership level. I mean, the fact that he's still being hired by multiple teams is part of the problem. I mean, and as you said, this was not a surprise. People knew about Mickey Calloway. They knew about his tendencies. They knew about his history of harassment, and yet he kept getting jobs. You know, and even a guy like the fact they got hired by Joe Madden is such a bummer. Joe Madden, who's supposed to be one of the more progressive minds in baseball, you know, he brings him in as his pitching coach in Anaheim. And it's it's not a it, – it doesn't seem to be something that registered for him. So I don't know how long it's going to take for actual, like, ownership to change. But that's that takes a long time for, for that age group to kind of age themselves out. So I, th- I just think it's going to be a long time before we really start seeing these, these changes on a large scale. But I do extreme- think that you're right. It's a generational thing. Yeah, extremely long time because it is a generational thing. And right before we hopped on, I did see that the Angels have fired him, but it's almost like after the fact, like they were waiting for a reason. Like, Yeah, what took so long? Maybe they needed to legally. I don't know, but it's hard when these things break because a lot of the times the bodies that maneuver the situation, the the organizational bodies, not the, the physical singular human bodies, they move in a way that is very frustrating and almost like uh, always waiting for some sort of cover. And I think hopefully that, you know, as that, that phases out slowly, but surely um, it'll be better. But I, I don't know. It, it's good to see something happen to Callaway months after the fact that the story broke, but who knows how long it takes for something really substantial to keep this from happening as opposed to waiting months to react to it happening. Yeah. And I mean, you'd kept this job for years for years, despite this being, as you said, a well-known, a poorly kept secret. 
So yeah, I mean, good good thing that we finally ousted this sixty something year old pitching coach. But I mean, <laughs> feels like it's not much of a punishment for for being a generally poor dude for quite some time. So hopefully, as we start, yeah, I mean, we we are seeing more and more younger coaches because of the you know, analytics movement, and hopefully, with that comes people who are more accountable and people who are, you know, treat other people better and with more respect and have a greater sense of personal space and how people should be treated and how not to abuse their power. But, um, you know, that, you know, that whatever we call it is, has been around forever. And I don't think it's necessarily just a thing that's going to age itself out. I mean, the younger generations are more aware of gender politics and gender issues, but that doesn't mean that it's that they're, you know, devoid of scumbags at all. So it's still going right. to take a concerted effort on, on people's parts to, to find these things out. And I think that reporters are getting more and more plugged in uh, because of outlets like the athletic and it's, it is getting harder and harder to keep these things buttoned up when they do come out. I mean, with the Jared Porter thing was kind of a classic, the what's going to be a classic example, example moving forward. And it's just going to be something that when it's out there at all, reporters are going to kind of sniff it out and they're going to have to keep doing that because teams aren't outing, outing these guys on their own and they're not, not hiring these guys on their own. That's the thing that's the worst part. It's like they keep kind of trying to get away with it. Yeah, because it's, it's a lot of people who probably look alike and who probably don't have that behavior done to them uh, who are making those decisions and being a part of those decisions. And for as much as we might be realistic in saying it's a generational thing, I think it's also a good point to say that it's going to take some distinct, active decisions from people along the way. And people not necessarily waiting to be in power, but seizing a moment where they can at least bring these things to light. So we wanted to touch on that off the top here as it broke pretty much right before we hopped on together. Uh, But we've got a big idea this week regarding uh, something, one of the more subtle stories in baseball in how the Mariners, a couple weeks ago, broke the seal on prospect season and called up Jared Kelnick. Uh, they called up Logan Gilbert. And these are top, top prospects. Kelnick is one of the top prospects in all of the game. Gilbert isn't too, too much further behind him. Definitely a top 100, top 50 guy. Various outlets would, would vet that out and bring it to light uh, and really emphasize the talent these young guys have. And yet, they're off to so slow starts. So, TC, I wanted to pose this question to you. Do we expect maybe a little too much of these young stars, these young top prospects when they come up? Across the board, probably. I mean, I think it's kind of a complicated question because there is... I mean, the funny thing about Kalanick is that there is this whole issue about the service time manipulation, right? Like, there's this this big movement that says that Kellenic was ready. He was absolutely 100% ready to go. And he could have been up at the start of the season, right? We hear this about him. We hear about, about, about uh, Kirloff in Minnesota, that there's, we have this perception about certain prospects that they are ready for the major leagues and that they're only held on for certain reasons. But then at the same time, you know, Kellenic take they take their time with them. They bring him up, you know, almost two months into the season and it's not like he's, you know, tearing the cover off the ball to start. He's got a 68 WRC plus through 50 plate appearances. Now, 
I think the biggest thing here is that this is a very small sample size and that with all these young guys, we see them come up. And I think to your point, we do expect too much of them in their first 50 plate appearances. I mean, a lot can happen in your first 50 plate appearances. You can have bad luck. You can have good luck. I mean, a lot of things, there's just a lot of variants. You can have face good pitchers. You can face collection of bad pitchers. You can have, I mean, it can just be any number of things that can skew that data for you. So I do think that on the whole, like, you know, if we expect him to come up and be a star right away, full stop, I think that's a little too much to ask. I think it is, but I think we have a hard time gauging what a star looks like, especially right away. And and a lot of the, the prospect hype comes from people who, who like prospecting, like doing that kind of thing, reading that kind of work, creating that kind of work. A lot of it is driven by the fantasy landscape, I think, for fantasy baseball. But, I, you know, I, I think there's really something worth mentioning in terms of when a guy is ready might not be an indicator of when he's quite ready for MLB, it might be an indicator of when he's ready to leave the minors. And there might yeah. be a gap between those two things. Uh, you mentioned, you know, he w- held down a couple months to start the year or, or six weeks thereabouts. And, um, you know, he, he was raking in AAA. He was hitting 370. He was, uh, he, he was slashing 374, 14, 630. He had an OPS over one and a uh, walk rate about 7%. K rate about 17%. Those last two numbers are almost identical for Jared Kelnick so far through his first 50 major league plate appearances. The rest of it is not at all. He's slashing 174, 240, 348. So I guess what I'm what I'm curious about is do you think that, you know, we we've talked here before about kind of calibrating expectations and levels and all that. Is there almost like a gap between being ready to leave the minors and being ready to hit major league pitchers? Is there just like such a a rare guy who can come up and hit the major league pitchers right away? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. I mean, the the quad A player is a you know a folklorish type of player now in baseball. The guy who can't quite make it in the majors but crushes continually in AAA. And I think that that level does exist. That there is this kind of shadow level between the two places where you might be good enough to star in AAA and not quite good enough to star in the majors. Like that's real. And, you know, in the case of Kellenic, I think it's hard to, it's still too early to tell. I mean, he very small sample in AAA this year, you know, he was only down there for a handful of games, 30 plate appearances and very small sample so far in the majors. You know, he has a 171 bad up right now through 50 games versus a 400 bat up in AAA. I mean, you balance those things out and he's looking pretty much, he's looking a lot closer to being the same guy, right? Like, you know, yeah. and if this is, you know, not the best two week sprint for him, then I, I, I don't think that's crazy. I, I don't think we can say that he's not ready yet. But I do think that there is that gap and those, you know, like I said, the first couple of weeks, any number of things can happen to skew that data, including it, it just being the biggest two weeks of your freaking life, right? Like, like that's, that's a lot to ask of somebody. And I think for hitters, sometimes it does just take some time both to balance out the, the, the sample size, to balance out the, the talent level that you're facing, you know, so that you get to face both the Rays and the Orioles, you know, and over, over however many games you're playing. And also just, you know, I think there's a certain amount of like, it helps to be 
to fall out of the spotlight a little bit. Like, you know, Kellen comes up and we're all, we all want to see his first few at bats. And then after some time passes, we kind of forget about him for a while and let him kind of go to work. And then that's when we kind of get to see how he, how he comes into his own or not. Right. Yeah, I think so for sure. I don't by any means want to say that we should close the book on Kelnick as a player. And it definitely is a small sample size. I think it's worth, I think what we really are doing here is just kind of amplifying how hard it is to play major league baseball. Um, you, you know, he, he, you're mentioning even quality of opponents. He's faced uh, the Padres and Cleveland, you know, two of the staffs, two of the stronger starting pitching staffs in the league, even though Cleveland's not quite doing it quite yet. Only Bieber has really been above average there, but, you know, still seeing a lot of talent. And I, I, I think, you know, you talked even about Babbitt, but I wonder the difference in quality between fielding between even AAA and the majors. I, because, you know, guys will eat up, elite hitters will eat up low minor league defenses, right? We, we can hear that through any number of uh, guys who like just hit a ton of ground balls, but they're, they're, they've got really good carrying skills in the low minors. So the ground balls will eat up the defenders. I don't know that that's quite happening here, and, and I'm sure it happens less as we go up the ladder through AA and AAA, and even again less so in uh, in the majors. And I, I, I wonder, too, if that's part of it, if shifts are maybe a little more aggressive or players who are seasoned are just ready to play uh, where Kelnick is hitting it because uh, right now he's he's struggling to start. But right now it's not terribly uncommon. Like you're saying, there can be a lot of noise in in batted ball data, but especially in a small sample. But I think there's some signal in this noise, given that he, he it was a 400 BABIP in those handful of AAA games, and it's 171 now. Uh, but even looking at his his quality of contact, his grounders to fly balls are pretty much a one to one ratio. Uh, he's hitting a lot. Uh, a lot more on the ground overall, but his air balls are kind of split up between line drives and fly balls in the early going. Not a ton of bad ball events, right? We're we're working with all these caveats. Uh, he's he just seems like he's not quite been able to drive the ball, and his pull percentage early on, nearly sixty percent. I wonder if he is maybe uh, trying to get on top of them a little too much, a little too aggressive in the early going. That would seem to be a narrative that would fit with a young player, a guy who's 21 and who's come up with a lot of hype in terms of maybe not setting himself up for a ton of success here early on. Well, that's the other thing is he is so young. Like he's not quite 22. I mean, going back a couple of years, I mean, there's only usually a handful of guys at that age who come up and get enough at bats to qualify. I mean, I know he's, he's not there yet, but it seems like he's going to get there by the end of the year. But I mean, just looking back at it last year, there were 12 guys around that age who qualified. So under basically 23 and three quarters or younger, there were 12 guys all season long, 12 hitters that is. And so he's in an, he's already just by being in the majors and assuming he's going to stay, he's in an extremely elite group so far this season yeah. there, there are only three guys 22 or younger who have who are qualified and he's not one of them yet but again this is like he is in an extremely extremely elite group usually there's only you know there's under 15 guys per season who come up under the age of 23 and play regularly 
So the fact that he's up at all is a tremendous sign. And again, I don't think, you know, I don't think he's drowning here necessarily. Like, as you said, some, like some of his, he's maybe pulling the ball too much and not getting as much lift as maybe he wants to, but the sample is so small. You know, we've seen guys drown in the majors. We've seen guys come up and just absolutely, absolutely struggle. I don't think that's what this is. I think he looks okay. He looks aggressive and he looks, you know, like he's maybe not making solid contact all the time, but there's uh there's plenty of time for Kellenic in particular. I mean, on the whole, if we talk about on a macro sense, I don't know. It does feel like a lot of the game's biggest stars are young players right now. Is that wrong? Yeah. So I, you're, you're, we're really feeding into a couple of things here that the, the bigger issues, right? Like Kellenic is really good example to kind of, uh, zoom out and see a lot of things happening in baseball right now. Like even the way he's being attacked by major league pitchers, a lot of stuff up and in, which might explain how he's pulling the ball so much because he does have a really good sense for barrel control and moving his bat through the zone. But he might be hitting a point where it's like, Jared, look, man, you you might be able to get to it. That doesn't mean you should get to it right now. Like you you might have a time where you can really do damage with that pitch, but why don't we focus elsewhere and see what happens? Um, it does feel like a young man's game, right? It does feel as though younger players are more and more a part of uh, a part of the bigger picture. I mean, we, I mean, how much time have we spent talking, even mentioning the names? I feel like we mention Acuna and, and Soto and Tatis almost weekly, right? Like, yeah. we always bring up those guys. They're always doing something incredible, and that's really maybe an unfair watermark to hold the to hold somebody to anybody. Even Kelnick, who came up with a ton of hype. Uh, but generally speaking, yeah, we are going younger in baseball this year. Uh, you know, if you look at leaderboards, even just in terms of creating runs, you want to look at like DRC Plus at Baseball Prospectus, WRC Plus. Uh, the guys who are older are registering fewer and fewer plate appearances pretty much year over year, which yeah. in it in and of itself tells you the younger guys are getting the time and opportunity. We're not spending as much time with uh, 30 plus year old mashers and much to, 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 to our chagrin, perhaps uh, fitting in that age bracket. But yeah, I, you know, it, it feels like a young man's game. And at the same time, it feels like young players can come up and struggle, especially like Kelnick, if they don't have an elite carrying tool, but they're just above average at everything. They don't have a loud tool to show off right away when they really make connection. Right. Yeah, I mean, you look at a guy like, I'm thinking of the Nationals, I'm thinking of Josh Harrison, right? Josh Harrison is 33 years old. And every time I see him in the lineup, and he's an everyday player for the Nats, every time I see him, I'm like, man, that's amazing. How's, how's he still <laughs> And like, the Nats are one of the few teams that will routinely give playing time to a guy like this. He's 33 years old. He's never been a star, right? He's like, he had, he had one tremendous season. And otherwise, he's just been like a fine player for a really long time. He was pretty much out of the league. The Nats have two young infielders in Luis Garcia and Carter Keboom, who they have expected to be their next star. And yet they haven't really taken hold of their opportunities. And so they're letting Harrison play and Harrison's doing a fine job somehow, but he's a very rare player nowadays. Like you don't see teams giving 33 year olds, continued opportunities like that. And it just, and I get it because financially the upside isn't there, right? Like 
best case Harrison plays really well and he's and then he's priced himself out of your out of your range for the next season because he now is going to want multiple millions of dollars and there's so there's not much upside there whereas if you have a young guy you bring in Luis Garcia you give him the at-bats and he takes off and he really develops like now you're investing in something right like giving that playing time to a younger player is an investment giving it to an older player is not an investment at all it's just you're just trying to get the most value for that season for that moment and nowadays teams don't feel I, I think teams don't really feel like they need to maximize those opportunities and that there are there are a lot of young players that there's not as much of a gap between I mean the Nats are also a weird team because they have not very many young players right so the gap between Josh Harrison and whoever is playing second base in AAA might be pretty large for a lot of these other teams it's really not not as much right at least in terms of uh, like the potential outcomes, right? We talk about the 90th percentile outcomes versus the 50th percentile outcomes. Like there's a lot of bleed there yeah. between these, you know, the, the veteran, the veteran guy who's been around for a while and the younger player who you're hoping pops. Right. And there's just a lot more upside in bringing in letting these young guys play. And so that's why I think we're seeing more and more of them play, especially now when there's just, you know, we have a couple of, the financial disparity has also really grown so that we have a couple of, you know, gigantic stars making huge amounts of money. And then teams are really trying to maximize where they spend their money. Otherwise, both in terms of the, the roster, uh, like histogram and, and in terms of their, their window, trying not to spend at all until their window hits. Right. That's why we see with a team like the Padres, a young player like Fernando Tatis Jr. Who is of course an anomaly. Like he is definitely an outlier but a young player who comes in and is a star like him, he changes the way that they run the team. Now they have a young player who's making not very much money and they're trying to maximize that, that window right now. So they're, so the Padres kind of changed the way they do business. Right. And now they've tried to build around that young player while they have him. And it's, I mean, that's before his extension kicks in where the money changes dramatically and, and the outlook of the team might look, but a lot of the ways you're talking about there is really similar to what's happening in the NFL with, quarterbacks on rookie deals right that a lot of teams want a top quarterback on the rookie deal because they can only make so much money and then they have the rest of the money under the cap to fill out the rest of the roster and enhance it as much as you can emphasizing both the efficiency something we've talked about a lot lately and the youth aspect of it because the youth goes hand in hand with the efficiency we we have these models set up that are at this point i i think most baseball fans would at least appreciate if not fully comprehend uh, in in like a massive way that uh, the 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 pay scales we have aren't really desirable or useful. They, they reward players who are old enough who aren't producing, and at that point we decide to stop paying them. And then there's money left over for the younger guys that we don't really pay them yet either because we let uh, an archaic arbitration system uh, kind of work that out on its own. And it is a unique situation, I think that we find ourselves in with baseball because a guy like Kelnick does come up and does start to represent uh, a bigger portion of the league while not necessarily being the, like he might be an extremely efficient roster spot, but for a guy like him who comes up with a fanfare that he does, he might not be an efficient player. And I think those are two different things. We talked about all the nuance in this game over the last few weeks for sure. And I feel like we just are seeing it in spades here 
early on, especially when it comes to a potentially really exciting young team like the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, I mean, I think efficiency is a huge part of it, right? Like, and that's the team success is maybe a bigger reason that I would think the Mariners would have wanted to hold him down longer. It's not so much about like how long do they have control of Kellenic. It's about it's about how long can they maximize his efficiency as a really cheap and really good young player. I mean, as much as the, as like as long as the arbitration process is, and it is long, six seasons is crazy, and three seasons before getting before even reaching arbitration, that feels in, in the in a vacuum like a really long time. But in terms of growing a baseball team and in terms of building a contender, it's really not that long. You can, if you know, if you have a, a, a star player languishing on a team that's not that good for one, two seasons already, you start to see the window when he starts getting expensive. And yeah, and all of a sudden, like you all of a sudden that guy has to be your your savior if, if he's gonna be the guy that you're gonna pay. And it does become kind of a roster building challenge. And so for the Mariners, yeah, they want Kellenic up now, but I think, you know, there's a reason they wanted to see Tremel a little bit before, and they wanted to see what, how much Kyle Lewis can really establish himself before. And they're really, you know, I think the Mariners do have an exciting young roster and they are, they have been trying, they've been building around this particular window. Uh, you know, Jerry DePoto, their GM has said for a long time that this was the year that they're going to start looking at maybe contending this year. And really next season is when they're really going to start looking at it. And that's because of guys like Logan Gilbert and Jared Kellenic, right? Like they have, they've yeah. had kind of the first wave of guys come up, Evan White and uh, Kyle Lewis and, you know, Tramel who's up and then down again, but um, you know, Justice Sheffield is part of this and, and Justin Dunn and, you know, some of their bullpen guys and, and they've started to put together a roster. What it doesn't have right now is the star power. And so if, if Kellenic is able to come up and really fill that spot and really be a, a, star for them everything else kind of starts to fall in line and you start to see the the makings of a contender and financially that makes sense for them so they're yeah. so they've kind of they're you know timing this thing timing it right but you know for 25 teams or 30 30 teams across the league i mean that there's just a lot going into these promotions and and demotions and and when guys are actually ready versus when they want them to be ready and when is the team ready for them to be good? I, I really enjoy that last point that you're emphasizing when the team wants them to be ready versus when the guy is ready. Even so, so much of what you said uh, rings off so many different points uh, in my own head. And one thing you're really speaking to is player depth, right? Like if you don't have the superstar, or even if you do and you're waiting for them, it really helps to be able to elevate. Like, of course, the Rays are great at this, right? Like this is why they just traded Willie Adames and brought up Taylor Walls, who's 25, instead of Wander Franco or Vidal Bruhan, because they can. And they're good at churning out those players who are carbon copies of themselves or slightly better versions of each other, and finding a way to get that guy onto the roster. And I think every team in baseball, to a certain extent, is looking at player dev as as this kind of window in its in and of itself, where... If you pour resources into that and you start to squeeze out more players, you start to squeeze out more value from particular players, your stars that you're waiting on are a little less uh, pressurized, right? Like they don't have as much weight on their shoulders. They're, they're still going to be an incredibly, maybe the most important cog in the entire machine, but ultimately 
there's less heavy lifting to be done. Uh, fun, fun baseball guy alert. Uh, Shohei Otani just hit an infield single that was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but that that aside, we'll b- back into the Mariners. You know, you also mentioned percentiles. I really like that uh, for for BP with their projection system, Pakoda. It gives you percentiles from like the fifth, I think, through the ninetieth percentile or the ninety ninth. And it goes up in increments of 10 from like uh, 5, 10, 20, 30, and so on. And that's a really, really useful way to look at what any given player could do. A lot of the times, the the other public projection systems that we have don't really do that. We don't get to see inside zips or steamer or the bat. Uh, And they're really useful scales to look and kind of, again, calibrate our expectations. But what ultimately the Pakoda system does is it'll give you 50th, 70th, 90th. So if you look at that for Jared Kelnick in particular, he's not really expected to be even an average bat until the 90th percentile this year. And that is not throwing shade at him as a player. That's just a fact of like what a 21 year old does when he comes up into the big leagues, because like you're saying, not a lot of guys are even good enough to be there at 21 or younger. So when they are there, they tend to need to, Take a learning curve that might be a little steep and might be a little uncomfortable. And it might afford you a chance to look at a Taylor Trammell. It might afford you a chance to evaluate, like, he, he was not doing well. It's whiffing, like, 40% of the time up here at the major leagues. And then got sent down. He's been raking. It's only been a handful of games for him, but he's been raking. So it's like, what do we make of that? How do we kind of get him between the shadow level, like you mentioned? I love that phrase, a shadow level between AAA and the majors. How do we get these guys across that threshold and, and into kind of like this, I don't want to say promised land because that's, that's like associated with titles and championships, but how do we get them into this upper echelon? How do we get them ready? And is the answer as unfun as it might be for us who immediately want that gratification that they just need to play? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's a really good question. I The thing I wonder about is like, is it, like, where do they need to play, right? Like, <laughs> you've seen guys come up too soon, and coming up too soon can be detrimental to your to your development. You come up, and all of a sudden, you're overmatched, and you feel differently about your abilities, and you're really struggling, and you start to force things, and you start to mess with your mechanics, and you have trouble kind of finding your groove again and getting that perfect swing right. And, you know, it can mess with you. So, like, yeah, I do, like, 100%, you need to play. Like, that's the only way to get, to become the, like, standard consistent major league world where we know where the floor is high enough such that we know we can play you every day and you're going to be a piece in our lineup that we know we want there yeah but i don't know that it always means having to play in the majors and i think that's the thing that's unfortunate and the thing that we don't really the thing that we really don't like you know the the reason the rays are able to be successful is because they wait on taylor walls they wait and they wait and they wait and they work on everything in development they make sure they're ready that they've like there's nothing that they're trying to figure out at the major league level. They're waiting until he's hitting 400 and playing the defense that they expect him to play. And then they move him and then they bring him up. Like they don't feel pressure to bring these guys up. Like most teams you would have thought would have gone to Wander Franco last year in the world series. It's like, here's your chance. Maximize yeah. it. Go for all your guys. Right. But if they don't think he's ready, if they don't think he's like 100% there, then they don't rush it. And I think that that's probably the smart thing to do also because it does benefit you in terms of service time. Like you want to maximize the race, especially, you know, and, and 
there are questions here about like how much this should be the case, but the fact is it is the case right now because of the current CBA and how it works and how the sure. financials work. Like the Rays are better off if they don't expose players until they're actually ready to go. And like, they don't, you know, Taylor Walls maybe could have been up last year and been replacement level at shortstop. But they don't want to use his service time on a guy who's replacement level, right? Like that's the whole point. You can get replacement level anywhere, right? So why waste a guy who has an all-star ceiling on bringing him up before he's ready to be above replacement level, right? So, you know, and a lot of these young players, we'd see them come up and we see them be essentially replacement players. So to me, that says maybe they're coming up a little too soon as much as, as much as we hate to say that because, because we love the young players, right? They have all the promise. These are the guys we want to see. They're the, they're the mysteries. Once we see somebody play a while, you know, stick with the Mariners for a second. Look at JP Crawford, who is boring to everybody now, (laughs) but was a top prospect some time ago and he's become really good. Right. But we've seen him now. So he doesn't hold quite the same promise as some of these younger players. So we're not as excited about him because we know who he is. So like, you know, what's behind door number two is always more intriguing. It's always more titillating, but we (laughs) want it for sure. But I don't think that that's necessarily the best option always in terms of, in terms of building and sustaining a, a winner. Yeah. You know, what's behind door number two makes me think of, um, what is it? Family guy where, um, they get sucked into an auction, uh, where it's like, we could give you this boat or we could give you the mystery box. And Peter's like, Oh God, the mystery box. It could be anything, even a boat. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Right. That's that's a great joke. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I think it's great because it it kind of holds true, right? Like it, it could be anything. It could even be what we already have. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things I love about baseball, that but can also make it uh, difficult just to kind of like weave through and, and walk through the path of like a corn maze, basically, is that one issue, like a top prospect's immediate performance when caught up for the first time, really does, I think, scale reasonably into other conversations. So you mentioned, and, and we've both mentioned the Rays and, and how they need to be this way. Uh, you know, th- like there was a story recently where their minor- minority owners are suing their majority owner, Stuart Sternberg. Have you seen this? No. For um, looking, that it's it's a quote relentless scheme to take over control of the team, uh, and began secretly negotiating to sell an interest in the Rays to Montreal investors in 2014, years before it was publicly disclosed. So, as much as it like we could debate whether it's moral that it is this way or not when it comes to calling up players and and fielding the best team as soon as you can i I think there's a morality aspect to it where it's like it also doesn't the rules also don't say it has to that that the teams have to take advantage of it in the way they do so it's such a weird line to walk especially in the context of the race because it's like every owner is a billionaire they could afford to invest a little more in their team uh and that's why i think maybe that's where some of the frustration comes from too and it's almost like i I don't know, like it's sometimes I talk about zooming out. Sometimes it's very difficult to step back and and see like which which steps do we want to step on here, (laughs) knowing that that one of them might give pretty easily. Um, I I mean, I I don't know, even in the case of the Mariners and and just generally talking about development, you mentioned uh, Justin Dunn and and Justice Sheffield. Those are guys that that they've squeezed a little more out of. They've ironed out, and and they look like they could be back end rotation pieces, which is a really big deal for a team like Seattle, who 
you know, they'll they'll take as many wins as they can get, right? Sure, except that they're already they've been up now long enough that they're going to start, you know, they'll enter arbitration before too long, and then all of a sudden they're they're not those great fines anymore, right? Like, it's good, yeah, it's great to have a back in rotation piece, but what happens when they when they're making three million through arbitration? When they're making six million through arbitration, it's less of a it's not as much of a you know a market advantage anymore. Like they've had to iron these things out, iron these guys out at the major league level. And that costs something. It it costs a lot. And, you know, they are now going to be probably more like when they're really effective pieces of a rotation, they will probably be paid more appropriately like their effective pieces of rotation, which means that they still need to find other parts of the other, other places on the roster to, to find a real market advantage, right? For sure. And I think that's where a guy like Logan Gilbert could be really key because now he's a couple years behind Sheffield and Dunn in terms of getting exposure and service time. And he came up. It's kind of interesting to look at the breakdown of young hitters versus young pitchers. Young pitchers tend to come in and hit a floor sooner, a higher floor than hitters do, while hitters might offer the higher ceiling, right? Like the odds of even a Logan Gilbert type turning into, uh, you know, a Max Scherzer level ace who we love it's just like, it's unthinkable. Like guys just don't become that. Whereas there's a, a bigger spectrum for hitters to, to kind of rest in. Uh, but given that they come in at a higher floor, Gilbert's kind of already there. Uh, so far he has, he's worked only 10 and two thirds innings uh, through, I think three starts. He's got an average strikeout rate uh, well below average or well, I guess above average for the pitcher walk rate. He's walking way fewer guys than usual. Uh, the average pitcher does, and only 23% grounders, which might be another kind of a nod to hitters. Like, hey man, we can square you up at this level. Like your breakers, they need to improve a little bit. That's something even Nick has written about in his write-ups uh, in the SP roundups. You know, he might have things to learn, but his his 7.59 ERA is not necessarily indicative of what his 4.36 FIP is suggesting, right? No, not at all. And and I th- I do think that you're right in that he'll hit a pitchers hit a floor a higher floor much sooner, right? But also to your point, I mean, even Max Scherzer didn't become Max Scherzer until 28. You know, he was 28 years old when he finally became a frontline pitcher. It was in his second to last season with Detroit. He'd already been moved on from the tie- the Diamondbacks had already traded him away. He'd had parts of six seasons before he was an all-star parts of six seasons in the majors before he was an all-star where he was good, yeah. but just kind of a middling rotation guy. Right. And then he figured it out and put it all together. That's not to say that Logan Gilbert is going to do that, but he could do that. And I think that that's more, a more frequent path. And so I, I just think you end up having to pay for pitchers more, more often, because I think, you know, as Sheffield, you know, Sheffield only has one year service time now. So he's still very cheap and Gilbert is just starting his career. So he's going to be cheap for another three seasons, two and, a, two and a half seasons. I do think that like by the time that they get reached their peak, they're going to have to be paid more appropriately. Whereas you can, I think hitters are maybe, maybe less or maybe more volatile, but you can get them better faster. Don't you think that I feel like hitters maybe have a higher ceiling early on when they're younger. I mean, then, uh, Oh yeah. Then pitchers do. Oh yeah, because I I think it just it, there are so many ways to develop any player, but pitchers 
I mean, even the tech now that's coming out that, that tends to favor them and, and naturally just because they dictate the action, right? There are just so many guys, like Spencer Turnbull's 28 and turning a corner. Like, like you mentioned, Scherzer, he's, he was in the league for parts of six seasons before he really became who we think he is now, right? Who we know he is. And so I, I think you're definitely onto something there in that regard that there is um, more room sooner for hitters to make the impact that they do. And I, I guess, so it's really interesting. I mean, even even looking behind Gilbert and Kelnick for the, the Mariners minor leagues, they have a ton of young arms who are really exciting who could start to fill these voids. And as guys get more expensive, hopefully their their dev program keeps up. And they seem to be, you know, all of this and what you're saying, what I'm saying, it seems to really impress upon everybody really looking closely at a club like Seattle and other teams building that there are a lot of moving parts to being a good baseball team. And I mean, the whole thing is moving parts, right? That's, <laughs> that's how it seemed like the Rays succeed. Like there's, the, you know, some teams can find a Max Scherzer and just kind of ride him. You're, you're Clayton Kershaw and ride him in the rotation and, you know, figure your position players out as you go. The Rays know they're never going to be able to ride a player like that. So they are just constantly moving parts and they are constantly just making sure they have enough guys and they don't have to be too cute about somebody like Willie Adamas, who maybe, you know, maybe looks like they didn't get very much for him or they didn't get enough for him for a young shortstop like that, but they got the pieces, they got pieces that they need right now to fill the holes right now. And they're going to, that's going to, that's how they work, right? It's just moving parts all the time and, and kind of counting on, in some ways, banking on small samples that anybody can kind of play above their head for a small sample if they're used in the right spot, other teams, other teams are really, I think, I think more teams more often than not fall into the trap of trying to find those cornerstone pieces that you can just kind of set it and forget it. Right. You, you want your, you want to tease that yeah. you can just put in the lineup and say, Hey, we're good at short stuff for the next 15 years. We don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But I, I think that that's kind of a that's, fallacy for the most part. And I think that's a great point that so many teams are looking for that set it and forget it option that they miss out on opportunities to change course that are really promising. And there's a, there's a little bit of plan thoroughly and then wing it to building a club as, as much as that might be reductive. It might also be uh, really honestly and fairly descriptive because at some point, like we're saying like that, you know, the, the race have their, their limits. They just will not spend more on a certain guy. They will not care if they are loved in the clubhouse like Adamus was uh, the Mariners are going to reach a point we were talking about a few moments ago where they're going to need to invest in maybe a big star, maybe an offseason piece in an amazing shortstop class this winter. But if they don't do that, and if they even if they do it, and they 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 see a chance to pivot and they don't, that's when you can miss. It's really interesting, this kind of dance that clubs are forced to 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 participate in this dance between like the human aspect and the business aspect, this dance between development and relying on older guys, um, you know, this dance to kind of shift gears and, and when to do it and timing it all right. I think that just emphasizes too, which is really endearing to me is just how freaking hard it is to build a team and oh, to man. see all the pieces move all at once. So, um, yeah. And, and you know, if, if it happens and it all falls in line, I mean, Again, my touchstone is the Phillies, and people are like, well, they should have won more than one title in that run. It's like, I don't know. It would have been awesome, but 
that was an incredible run and they got one, right? They got, like, they got one at all, which is amazing. Like, I mean, it's funny now, like now I think of the the current Cubs as being very similar to those Phillies, right? The, the sure. Cubs have, they've tried to avoid the trap of, of signing Chris Bryant to the Ryan, Ryan Howard style contract or Anthony Rizzo to the Ryan Howard style contract, but they're facing the same kind of thing where they were got really good, really fast. And then people expected them to win multiple titles and they had chances, but they didn't, they won the one winning one is really pretty good. And you got to take it where you can get it and kind of be happy about it. It's, you know, but that's, that's part of it too. It's like, you know, we, I feel like we we're always wanting these things to be so stable, right? We're so afraid to change this yeah. as people, but also as fans. Right. And so like, we want, that's what we want. We want the, the Jeter Yankees, right? We want this core four. Yeah. We want these core teams that are going to be our team for half a decade and just win, win, win. But that's not really how it works. Like everything's just much more fluent than that. I mean, there's too much variability. I mean, you look at, Again, it goes back to the those projections, right? The the percentiles, 90th percentile to the to the fifth percentile. There's a huge range for every single player, right? Every single yeah. player has a huge range of potential outcomes, even knowing their skill level, right? You look at Francisco Lindor, <laughs> a guy who has been a star in this league for years, since he was yep. since he was Kellenic's age, since he was 22. He's been a star. He has been a team, a guy that has led a team through the playoffs to the World Series. He doesn't have one yet. But he's gotten him there. He's been like he's a star in this league. And this year, he's been very normal, right? <laughs> and so what do you he do when you when you're the Mets and you're like, wait, no, no, we just we just banked on this guy. This guy who's this guy is definitely good at baseball, right? Like <laughs> we're not sure about a lot of guys. Guys come up, we don't know, it's small sample, blah, blah, blah. Francisco Lindor is definitely good at baseball. He has a 68 WRC plus this right this year. Right, he's he's got the same WRC plus as Kellenic. Same as Kellenic, right? He's 27 <laughs> years old. He's smack dab in the middle of his prime. He is like yep. he should be better than ever right now, and yet the Mets are looking at this thing 42 games in to a a 10 year contract, and they're like, man, I hope he should, I hope he turns this thing around. Like, what is what is going on with yeah. Lindor? And this is part of the point. It's like there's so much variability. I mean. This, this, and that's just one guy, right? So you need to build then your 26-man roster. And, and <laughs> literally, like, other guys. now more than ever, we're, we're actually talking about 40-man rosters. Like, when I look at a team yep. and an organization, it's no longer looking at the 26 guys. It's looking at the 40-man roster because everybody gets used. Almost every team uses their whole 40-man roster now, right? So, like, you're looking then at the variability for every single one of those 40 guys and trying to figure out how you're going to build the best the best team each year. And it's, like... It is really difficult because what happens when the guy that you've got at the front of the line, when Francisco Lindor shows up and through 42 games has a 68 WRC plus. <laughs> like, then you're like, I, yeah, it's you're really not repla- hard. And you're not replacing him. Like, nope. That's the guy you're, you're stuck with. So then you have a, you have that spot in your lineup. That means you need every other spot in your, line, in your lineup to overperform. And you're not likely to have that happen. I mean, and yet the Mets are in first place. Yeah. Yeah. This is just like so much baseball is so weird. Um, like baseball is hard. Yeah, it's it. really hard. Baseball and, is so hard. And, <laughs> you know, it'll probably come around for Lindor at some point. His, his walking K rates are the same. He's just not making contact the way he has in the past. Uh, again, maybe a pitch selection thing. I think a lot of guys with the way that this new ball is moving, because God forbid Major League Baseball as, as an office would understand what they're doing and the unintended consequences that could happen. Um, by by making these tweaks, you know, it's harder to hit right now. So if it's harder to hit for a guy like Francisco Lindor, 
imagine what it's like for a guy like Jared Kelnick who has not been here before. And it was so funny that you were like, you know, that's what we want. We crave this stability. And I was like, oh, God, are we talking about baseball or the human condition where we, <laughs> we want the stability? And then we're like, wait, we have the stability and things aren't all that good because now Lindor is the Mets forget it and uh, set it and forget it player. And it's like this looks very ugly through his first 42 games. And who knows how many more he's going to have to play. And yet, like, I, I don't know. It just, we, we've talked about embracing chaos before. It feels like we kind of have to embrace chaos, no? Yes, of course. I mean, as always, are we talking about baseball or the human condition? Both. It's always both. That's why we, that's why we like baseball. Because that's, it's a little microcosm, a little pretend world where we can see how humans interact and what they, how they adjust to things. I mean, yeah, I mean, this, this Lindor thing is just, is crazy. And it's one of the, th- it's one of the reasons why, you know, we've talked about Harper being a difficult set and forget it kind of guy. Right. Cause as, as you're right fielder, you know, I just think it's hard to commit to somebody like Harper for, for 13 years, because that means of all the corner outfielders that you're developing in your system over the next 15 years, only one at a time can be, can be playing at, the, at your roster. Right. Like, yeah, it's a, it's just a tough thing to commit to any one guy for that long. And it's just rare for it to really work out. And even when it does, you know, Mike Trout, for instance, it doesn't always work out like he's hurt now. So the guy yeah. that they've committed to their centerpiece guy, they don't even have him in the lineup now. And now they're playing Juan Lagares and how are you supposed to pre- prepare for that? And what yet, you like you have to prepare for that. That's part of what, you know, that's part of what being a good franchise is. That's why the Dodgers are still able to stay afloat, even though they've been without, Cody Bellinger and and so many other players through this first part of the season, they're, they're hanging around. Yeah. You know, the injuries are one thing we'll get to in in just a bit as we seem to by necessity every week. Uh, It's nice that you bring up trout. I think that really centers it nicely back on Kelnick as a player, as a rookie, as a very hyped up prospect, because even that Mike trout, he did not do well in his first 40 game sample, right? He was nothing impressive pretty much at all. I mean, like he came up and held his own another, you know, low, low average on balls and play guy. Uh, he slashed 220, 281, 390 before coming in the next year as a 20 year old and hitting 326, 399, 564. <laughs> and now is Kelnick going to do that? No. Is he going to be Mike Trout? Probably not because only Mike Trout is Mike Trout ever in the history of baseball. But there is kind of a ceiling there. And let me run this one by you because it seems to be a really good uh, place that we might gauge our own expectations around Kelnick and, and his ilk. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., another can't-miss prospect, was terribly unexciting his first two years in the league, wasn't he? And now, in his third year, he's finally doing it. He finally looks like the guy we all thought we were going to see immediately when he came up to the majors uh, three years ago as a 20-year-old, and we thought he would rake right away. Instead, he came up and was like, fine. He had .6 FR in his first two seasons, which is only 183 games, given that last year was just 60. But this year, he's finally there. He's He's walking more than he's striking out. He's got an OPS well over one. He's got over three wins worth of value at this point. Does... Vlad and maybe even Scherzer say Vlad takes three years. Scherzer took six years. Do these guys provide like a quote unquote reasonable scale for us to maybe uh, weigh top prospects on? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose so. I mean, I think Vlad, like I think 
like he was fine. He was he was above replacement level, barely, but he was. You know, with the bat, he was a little bit better. He was, you know, five percent better than average as a rookie, twelve uh, percent better than average in in over twenty twenty, and that's that's pretty freaking good to be twelve percent better than average, right? And as a as a twenty one year old, and I think that like a lot of what we're talking about kind of gets to. What it really comes down to is why I hate fantasy baseball. <laughs> I can get into this for a little bit. Is because just like the conversation between player and team is so different. And and so much of the baseball world, the baseball Twitter world that is like, you know, we want to look at players. And so and the younger generation nowadays really focus on like favorite players more so than favorite teams. And yeah, it's just a different thing to look at a player and how he's going to develop and what his skill set's going to be versus looking at a team and then trying to decide which teams are going to be good. Cause we look at, you know, the blue Jays and we say for years now, we've been looking at them thinking, why aren't they better? They have all these young studs and they do like Vlad's been, he's been a young stud. He's been maybe the best, you know, among the best 20 year olds in the world, among the best 21 year olds in the world yep. at, at playing this game. And yet like, that doesn't mean like, but he hasn't been that helpful for fantasy or not as much as we thought he, he would be. He hasn't really put up the individual numbers yet until now and you know this year people had like written him off he was being his like adp had fallen so far dude's 22 years old right and we we're like well he's he hasn't done it yet so let's let's wait till he does and it's like yeah guys get better like 20 year olds are gonna get better 19 year olds who are playing are gonna get better 22 year olds are gonna continue to get better but you know the the individual uh the individual like learning curves do not necessarily correlate to a team's success and how good a team is. And I think that's, they are totally different conversations. They can almost be talked about like different sports entirely because they almost have nothing to do with each yeah. other with, you know, with Mike Trout being a, a prime example of as a guy who has become exactly what we've wanted him to be. And therefore we would think that angels would be exactly what we want them to be, but they're not year after year. They're not. I think that's a really, really good point is that they are basically two different games and that it seems insane to not necessarily write off, but kind of dump on a a 20-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 22-year-old in Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And like it's it's funny you mentioned hating fantasy baseball for this reason. We're not getting the enjoyment out of it. A lot of people do. I have such a hard time struggling uh, with evaluating hitters because it's like they do take so long to develop and, and because they do come up and there are quality major league players, but it's like, yeah, they're not really cutting it. And that's like, uh, I, I guess this is where I have to like uh, improve on my evaluation of the human condition and like, <laughs> what is it to wait and, and like see a guy through? Um, because th- this reminds me of a couple of things, all the things you're saying. One is that aging curves and expectations are different for literally every player. For as much as we can, again, zoom out and look at the entire bucket's worth full of every major league player ever and and every major league player in a certain generation or over a certain time span and get a sense of the general aging curve, you look at every individual player and that thing would be like, it would be like, you know, practical joke snakes out of a can, right? Like they would just be firing everywhere. And this is something that uh, Corey (laughs) Fronten... Has uh, that's a great he, metaphor. He's like done that. some work. <laughs> uh, Corey Fronten has done some good work on this. Uh, that he has, a, I think, it's a two or three part series on BP. That's actually, I think, free to read with a basic subscription. It, it might still be free to read. That just means you sign up for their email list and they send you emails. 
and they, there are free articles to read through it. So that's a great thing for everybody to do. But basically saying that, like, if you wanted to look at Mike Trout and say, well, he's going to age this way and we should really start subtracting this kind of value from him each season after this age, it doesn't really work that way. Like, it is not a square thing. It is not a linear progression or a nice, like, clean math problem when you get down to the individual level. And that's why, where it's like we have to deal with this. We, ha- we cannot look at baseball and not confront how every little action also impacts the big picture and how every big picture is composed of a lot of little ones that happen to just go the right way, right? So I, I don't know. I, I, I guess, um, you know, it's, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I love that baseball will confound me this much, I guess, is, <laughs> is what I'm really getting at. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very confusing sport, especially when we look at it through all these different lenses all the time. You know, we're, you know, we're looking at through the fantasy realm and then through, you know, what we want our teams to be doing and what we expect our teams to be doing. And, and then at, you know, the actual like MLB standings, which is a wholly different thing that involves so many different, it is all like, yeah, we get, we have a hundred years worth of data, over a hundred years worth of data, but it's not all relevant. And then when it comes down to it, in some ways, almost none of it's relevant. When we're looking at just Vladimir Guerrero Jr., you know, does it matter when, you know, Al Kaline became the best version of Al Kaline? Like, no, not really. Like, we learned these general trends and how they change throughout the generations. But players still perform better or worse than, than all these things, all these trends. And so it's, you know, it's all average, average out. And then every single guy with to start fresh. So yeah, when we look at Jared Kellenick, are you a little worried about him now? Maybe a little bit after 50 plate appearances, but on the whole, it's just, we just got to see more of it. See what, see what happens throughout the rest of the year with him. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, a nice point to wrap up on is that like, maybe uh, we don't know all that much as much as we love to talk about <laughs> how much we might know. Uh, and that's Okay. That's really okay. Uh, and I think that's a nice spot to transition into this week in baseball. I am right now, I had two things to say in, in addition to Corey's work. There was one other thing, and I, I'm forgetting it and I'm kicking myself. Uh, so I'll probably tweet it out at Breaking Pod PL. Everybody, look out for my after the fact thoughts that I'm sure will be graceful and, and incredible. <laughs> we can, um, and we can talk aging curves, you know, week after week <laughs> here. We, we could spend a lot of time on this. We, I, I, I bet we might come back to this. I bet we will. Uh, So, but this week in baseball, of course, a ton going on, and and in this year of all years, some news items. First, uh, D. Strange Gordon signed with a minor league uh, minor league deal with the Chicago Cubs. That is not news. Uh, That is not news. (laughs) (laughs) Put it away. D. Strange Gordon's not doing anything. Come on, he's wow. T. C. coming in hot on D. Strange Gordon. I was going to salute him as a guy who finds jobs at this point. Sure, minor league jobs. He'll, he'll keep finding those. <laughs> He's very fast. He runs very fast. So he is. Yeah. Uh, all right. What about this one? Is this real news? Billy McKinney to the Mets, who hit cleanup today in the wake of Jeff McNeil and Michael Conforto injuries. <laughs> also, not real news. The, the only news here is that the the Mets are looking to set a record for the most outfielders on the injured list. I mean, it's it's amazing how many outfielders they're lo- just like day after day losing more and more outfielders. Like yeah. it's amazing they have anybody left. So good for Billy McKinney. Former Cubs farmhand. He's been all over the place. He's kind of a replacement level guy, but you know, he's got to be out there. Somebody's got to play the outfield for the Mets. So yeah, why not him? Give him some time. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's the story is that the, not McKinney, but more so that it's like the 30th outfielder for the Mets so far. Uh, now, this one seems like real news, TC, and you wrote this up at MLBTR. Eric Kratz makes some sign-stealing allegations? Yeah, I mean, I don't know why now. I mean, certainly the, the hosts on Curtain Call, the, the podcast that he was on, didn't seem to be expecting him to kind of be breaking what he did. He came right out and, and said specifically the Rockies were doing the same thing with a Theragun, with a like a massage gun thing banging on the metal <laughs> benches. Same thing as the Astros. And then he said very vaguely that the the Dodgers were doing almost the same thing, which is a little bit confusing because almost the same thing as the Astros sign stealing is it's not legal. the same thing is at legal. all. Like almost the same thing is legal. Like we can do that. It's, it's just the question okay. is like, were they using electronics to steal signs? Right. Like that's where the line is. And if they were doing, if they were doing sign stealing, that was not that then that's okay. So, so it, very, very vague from Kratz there. If, if it did come out that the Dodgers were, were doing something more, it would be a gigantic deal, especially because of all the, what was me, me that we've gotten from the Dodgers since the Astros got caught, but we'll that's see true. what more comes of this. I don't know that. I mean, you think that there's going to be some follow-up. The Rockies are terrible now. Does anybody care if the Rockies were science stealing? <laughs> I, I don't know. I I don't particularly like, I feel like let's just move along, but, but once someone says it, you got to kind of look into it, but so we'll see if they, they yep. do see if the league does anything about it. This is, this is what my uh, grade school principal would refer to as a toothpaste statement. Uh, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't <laughs> put it back in. Yeah. True. Enough. And uh, yeah. So sister Pat Pisic getting a shout out here <laughs> among Eric Kratz. Um, I just, I, I thought, you know, it's interesting. You pointed out that if the Dodgers did it, almost what what the Astros did then it's legal I'd looked at it just from like a a word choice thing like almost the same thing means not the same thing man right like, come on right and the fact uh, that he wasn't anyway, willing I to guess say we'll, that is you know we'll call that story developing and see what comes of it yeah. uh, Alec Manoa is getting the call for the Jays yeah that's uh, cool I mean he he's kind of come up really fast you know the lost season makes everyone's development confusing but he's looked really good and the Jays the Jays need some starters. They need any kind of starting pitcher. Like that's the thing holding them back. So if, you know, Manoa can beat the curve and come up and be better than, uh, you know, better than we expect, then that could be huge news. I don't, I expect it to be a spot start and I don't expect him to, to stay for long, but the Jays are the type of team that if he does pitch well, I wouldn't be shocked to see up. him, see them, you know, give him some rope. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And even if he's a league average ish arm, like, Logan Gilbert has been under the surface level numbers. It could be really useful for that, that team. Like you were saying, they need the innings. Um, Josh Lindblom, DFA'd by the Brewers. What do you make of that? Because that was that was one of those coming back from overseas deals that everybody was like, ooh, look at that. That might work out. Yeah, surprising. I bought a lot of Lindblom stock this, this offseason. I was, I was ready for him. It's like, you know, he's, he's a very smart guy. There's lots of talk about all the studies that he's done and, and you know, this and that. And, and he talked a good game this offseason you know, took responsibility for not pitching that well last year and the Brewers are paying him. So I don't think anyone will claim him. So I think he'll have to go back to the AAA for a bit and he'll find his way back at some time. But, you know, I, I was a believer. I thought he was going to be a big arm for them this year. Uh, that has not been the case. He's been, he's been lit up a bit. I mean, 13, 12 and a half hits per nine or something like that. I mean, he's getting, he's getting hit hard. Yeah, I, I thought he was going to be a nice piece for them, too. Uh, but like you said, he's getting paid. And this is another football note. But Andrew Brandt, uh, another great 
uh, inside type follow. Uh, we call him a winner in the business of baseball. He's getting paid. <laughs> Doesn't matter where he's playing. Yeah, true enough. Uh, so good for him. Uh, but now, all right, so look, now the injury roundup. And I went back just three days when trying to look at this stuff and process it. Corey Kluber is going to be out for two months. Noah Syndergaard left his rehab start. That was supposed to be four Two months for Kluber? It just one. Yeah, yeah, that came out as we were recording. It's oh, going to be two months. man. It's a bummer, right? I mean, he was, do- he was doing Corey Kluber things. Everyone expected it. I feel like, cool, at least he got that no-hitter in. That's, that's great. <laughs> I just hope that's not what did it, right? Like, he didn't fight through something that game that, to make it happen. Yeah, I mean, there'll be talk of that, but how can we know? And, again, yeah. he, got a, he got a no-hitter. Good on him. I, I agree. Uh, Brian Anderson, third baseman for the Marlins, is going to miss several weeks with a uh, left shoulder subluxation, which is basically what Tatis had and came back from super quickly. So, so that's interesting. My second favorite Brian uh, Anderson ever to play baseball. Man. <laughs> out just like that uh zach plesak breaks his own thumb because he's kind of an idiot i can <laughs> zach, plesak, like one, zach plesak is getting quite the the real the highlight reel here of his you know being a freaking dope yeah man he might not be he might not be a jerk but he might not be the the the, the sharpest tool in the shed early in his career he, he ripped off his jersey and broke his thumb because Francona said he did it aggressively. <laughs> yeah, that's that's tough. You don't get a lot of undressing injuries, but you know, again, who's one? Yeah, uh, <laughs> and the Cleveland rotation could really use him. Talking about stabilizing, and, and if he could have turned a corner, uh, David Phelps, who has been great for the Jays, is going to miss the rest of the year with a lat strain. Of course, he is. The, the, you can't pitch well in the Jays bullpen and expect to last. No, it's apparently a, not. It's a cursed spot. Uh, Kyle Gibson hits the I.L. with a groin strain. Kenta Maeda also has a groin strain and is on the I.L. And Twins might keep him there longer just to make sure it, it heals more than the, just the, the 10 days. Uh, we talked about Bryce Harper to the I.L. with a forearm contusion. That whole thing is weird because Girardi wasn't upfront about it. And then he was like, well, it was a strategic thing. Like, what? Yeah. Girardi, he's, he's got some old school weird stuff going on. I, I kind of like him, but... I'm not exactly sure what he's doing over there, and then, and you losing Harper hurts because Harper has been really good. I mean, I re- I really like Harper and I really want him to succeed. It just feels like he's in, he's the star of a shir- circus show down there right now. Yeah, I agree, and I, I I don't know what to make of Girardi to this point because uh, a lot of the things that are happening with him are also the things that happen with Gabe Kapler, which I think points to a bigger organizational issue that they have not fixed that you can't fix overnight. Like we were talking about, all these things take time and it's a lot of moving parts and. I just don't know that the Phillies are going to be able to do it in the immediate future. Um, Harrison Bader to the I.L. with a cracked rib, an actual baseball injury. He got this one fielding, uh, diving for a ball. What do, what do you make of that? Is is that a bummer? He seemed to be turning a corner too. It's a bummer, but he's one of those guys that, you know, any you know, like nine out of ten good center fielders are going to get injured in the field at some point. Like they almost all yeah. do. That's, that's why we knew Luis Robert would get hurt at some point during the year. Bader's been pretty stable, but... Uh, and he's been good this year, but uh, yeah, crack rib that hurts. The the Cardinals outfielders haven't exactly been stellar on the whole, so they're going to have to kind of patch it together. And those Cubs are charging hard, so are the Brewers. They got to figure it out. It's going to be a dogfight in the Central, and they just lost Miles Michael, who's back on the 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 aisle with a forearm tightness. Right, another uh, one of those another... one and done. Bring him back, yep. send it back to the aisle. Like again, like coming up to the minors. Coming off the IL, just wait. 
wait until you're sure. Like there's no rush. It's, it's freaking May. Yep. Yep. I, I agree. Uh, and I think that's a really tough thing to balance talking about the human aspect of it. Uh, Trent Grisham is on the aisle with a heel bruise. Marcelo Zuna out for six weeks with two dislocated fingers. Nick Senzel out for possibly up to six weeks after knee surgery. These are like pretty significant players with some pretty significant injuries. Yeah, Sincel's just one of those guys now where it feels like, man, his star is just never going to shine quite as bright as it should. Like he'll be a guy who maybe he figures it out at some point when he's, you know, when he's really 27 and really in his prime and gets to yeah. play consistently. And like maybe he'll be with the second team, but he just seems like he's between the position changes and all the ticky tack injuries he's had. Like it just, it just feels like he's never going to be the guy that he's never going to be a star. I don't think. No, I agree. And uh, I, I take a deep breath in and you know, like another that's baseball like that. That's, that's how it goes. Um, the, the, some guys never get that shine. They never reach it. Um, wh- which brings me really to this is that Derek Rhodes at D R H O a three on Twitter uh, has always run a really great tableau that, that keeps track of, everybody's injuries in the league and how long timelines have been for other injuries and other players with those injuries in, in the recent past. Uh, he teamed up with baseball prospectus uh, to create this IL ledger, which is like this incredible tool giving you a really like one-stop shop to, uh, to really pace out and see all the injuries happening in baseball. It's worth following Derek again at D R H O A three. Yes. Even I'm sure we'll get some updates there for sure. I mean, I will um, just say that this no joke, this has changed my life. I freaking love this thing. This is an amazing tool. If you're following baseball, if you're writing about baseball, this, this is a tool that the landscape has missed, has been missing for quite some time. And they, they put it together really nicely here at BP. I am a huge fan, huge, huge. Yeah. Fan. Yeah. An incredible resource that, uh, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people including us will continue to reference. So uh, this week, TC, we went through, uh, expectations for young players, uh, what that means on different levels, and and uh, both uh, in the majors and minors, and cognitively for us as viewers, we went through uh, examples to temper and brace expectations. We went through news and non-news with D. Strange Gordon and Eric Kratz, <laughs> uh, and then it seemed like a million and one injuries, and here we are. So t- tell us, TC, what have you been up to? Where can we find you? What can we expect from you soon? Uh, you can find me the usual places at MLB Trade Rumors. You can find me at, at Pitcher List. I'm going to write something this week. I'm not really sure what. Everybody keeps getting hurt. Kind of knocking my plans out of, out of line here. So I don't know what I'll write about this week, but I'll write something. You can always find me at Twitter. Come give me some good ideas. TC Zanka. <laughs> there you go. I, I, I was laughing over it in appreciation of you. So again, at TC Zenka. Uh, and, and give TC some, some, some boost with ideas. As again, everybody's dropping like flies and then some. Uh, you can find us again through the Pitcherless Discord, a, a great community to ask all sorts of questions and, and talk all sorts of baseball with people. Uh, you can find me on on Twitter at Tim Jackson Says. Find the pod at BreakingPodPL. You can email us at BreakingPodPL at gmail.com. And otherwise, look for my depth charts pieces uh, every Monday at BP. Every other Wednesday is a, a fantasy freestyle type of thing. And uh, again, if you could rate us five stars and comment, subscribe, we would love you for it. We love you so much already for stopping by and spending time with us. And uh, we can't wait to see you next week. So have a great week, everybody.